You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 12th of December 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. Environmentalists, Greenpeace and so on, they were quite happy with her proposals, but industry and the Eastern and Central European countries are going wild now. A Green New Deal for Europe, but are some European nations feeling greener than others? My guests Robin Lustig and Stephanie Bolzen will discuss that and the day's other news, including Brexit and the UK's relationship with its neighbours in 2020. We will get the view from Germany and we'll also hear why diplomats from Germany and Russia are currently having difficulty seeing eye to eye. Plus, the strange journey of Aung San Suu Kyi from champion of democracy to alleged accessory to genocide. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Robin Lustig, broadcaster and journalist and former presenter of The World Tonight, and Stephanie Bolson, UK and Ireland correspondent for Die Welt. Let's start with the new hopes of the EU to save the planet with what is being called the European Green Deal. The idea is that the EU's 28 members, or as may be shortly the case, 27 members, will be entirely climate neutral by 2050. This will ideally mean that emissions will have no net impact on the climate, which represents a drastic hike in the EU's previous climate change ambitions, which were previously set at 40% below 1990 levels by 2030. Stephanie, first of all, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has said this is Europe's man-on-the-moon moment. Is that something of an oversell? She certainly has not been very modest in her presentation <laughs> yesterday in Brussels uh, by saying, uh, yeah, you should compare it to landing on the moon. Um, in, in, at the same time, she obviously puts the stakes very high for herself. So uh, she will be measured uh, with this. Um, she has, been, has presented herself as the new European Commission who will move Europe forward in one of the most important um, issues for mankind, which is um, climate change and uh, stopping climate change. So she will be measured. And interestingly, while in the past, um, environmentalists and activists for or against climate change were always unhappy with what the European Commission was proposing, this time it was absolutely the other way around. So um, environmentalists, Greenpeace and so on, they were quite happy with her proposals. But industry and the Eastern and Central European countries are going wild now. Well, but Robin, her thing is uh, that fighting climate change does not have to disrupt economic growth. I mean, if you're being wildly optimistic, you could argue that fighting climate change could end up being an actual driver of economic growth as technologies improve and develop. Um, that's If that's kind of right, why is it going to be a hard sell? Well, I think Stephanie's just put her finger on it. The resistance from industry, from huge corporate interests, is massive. Um, the, you know, the ambition here is is breathtaking. But I admire the ambition, and I understand that the, the man in the moon reference, um, man on the moon reference, I should say, um, nobody thought that could be done, and it was done. The difference, though, is that President Kennedy had the levers at his disposal to make it happen, at least in the sense of making the investment happen. The European Commission doesn't, and I wish I was more confident that the political will 
in all the 27 EU governments was there to make this a reality. But I think the European Commission is right to aim high. I think the European Commission is right to say this is something we absolutely have to take seriously. What they now have to do is sell it to the governments and the governments have to sell it to their industrial interests. I mean, Stephanie, for all that, as as you pointed out, there will be a number of EU nations which are, are likely to be at least a little bit difficult about this. But are we witnessing potentially here the EU trying to figure out what its post-UK life is going to be? Might there be more of this kind of ambition from the EU if it realises that, well, sorry as we are to see the UK go, etc., it does mean we jettison one large and perennially awkward member of this alliance? I think when it comes to climate change policies, that doesn't have much to do whether there's Brexit or not. And actually looking at the uh, at the numbers coming from the UK, they're quite good. I mean, this mm. is one of the countries that has a very good record uh, in the end because of nuclear energy. But uh, the UK is very good. Um, what I do think, it's, it's going to be very tricky. They, uh, von der Leyen yesterday already proposed a 35 billion euro um, fund for the Eastern and Central European countries in Poland, especially um uh, fossil fuels and uh, coal mining is something with which you win or lose elections. So that's really tricky. So they will insist they get a lot of money for that if they if they commit to these very ambitious climate uh, targets. The other thing is that it's going to be difficult for Europe to stay competitive. So if you now um, demand that industries work in a much more environmentally friendly way, that will have costs. So products from, Germ- uh, from, from Europe will be more expensive. So what do you do with products coming into Europe? And there's a lot of talk about um, having a special, they call it a um, European frontier tax. So any mm-hmm. products coming into the European Union will be taxed. That's tricky because the uh, um, World Trade Organization will say that's illegal against World Trade um, uh, principles. So there is, it's a long road. It's going to take many, many years. But I agree. In principle, this is a great thing to, to try and do. It is hugely complex. And, and I mean, I, I, I take your point, Andrew, about how it could actually help economic growth in, in, in some ways. I, I've never forgotten going to a green technology international trade fair in Shanghai, of all places, about, oh, nine or 10 years ago, at least, and seeing hundreds and hundreds of Chinese companies who were investing in green products. Mm. And they saw it as an opportunity. They saw it as a way of making money, of making products that would be ripe for export. And I just wish somehow that that was a message which more European industrial leaders could take on board and see this more as an opportunity and less as of a threat. Robin Lustig and Stephanie Bolson, thank you both for the moment. More from you shortly. But first, here is Monocle's Yolin Goffan with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. The UK is contesting the country's third general election in five years. A total of 650 members of parliament will be chosen under the the first-past-the-post system. It is the first time that the vote has been held in December in almost a century. Democrats in the U.S. House of Representatives have moved closer to impeaching Donald Trump. The House Judiciary Committee has been debating formal articles of impeachment, which lays out the formal charges against the president. Top Republicans have accused the Democrats of bias. It's been announced that Israel will hold its third general election in less than a year. Both Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his main rival Benny Gantz failed in their attempts following September's inconclusive election, and a fresh vote will now be held.
And finally, today's Monocle Minute reports that Vancouver's Park Board is deciding what to do with its three public golf greens. Critics of the courses say that new parks or affordable housing complexes where up to 60,000 residents could be accommodated are better uses for the land. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Yolene. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Mullet here with Stephanie Bolson and Robin Lustig. Uh, let's move seamlessly along and consider how the EU's largest economy is going to respond to the challenges posed by Brexit, which, barring something especially hilarious occurring in today's general election, is presently scheduled for January 31st. Germany has, of course, had ample time to prepare for such an event, the UK having kindly furnished several missed deadlines by way of rehearsals, which may be why quotes attributed to a senior German government official, that's in quotes, suggest that it might actually be possible for the EU and the UK to agree some kind of free trade agreement by the end of next year. Um, Stephanie, where is this optimism coming from? Well, you you have to read the whole text. I mean, this (laughs) is only the headline and this is only the first part of what that official said. So it's rather cheeky. Uh, That German official, and I happen to talk to quite a lot of officials myself in the last days because of the election here and because if the Conservatives win, that will mean that there will be Brexit on the 31st Mm. of January. Um, They are saying, of course, you can have a a free trade agreement by the end of 2020 if and only if the next British government agrees to everything that the Europeans want. So do the standards, (laughs) accept the... um, except the sovereignty of the European courts of rights. It's absolutely politically impossible that this will happen. But hey, I mean, if you don't diverge, if you align to everything, here is the free trade deal. Because, Robin, we are likely by the end of next month to be entering on a yet another new stage uh, of the Brexit debacle, which will be Brexit having actually happened and the United Kingdom having to adjust to the consequences as long, along with its trading and diplomatic partners. Um, do you get yet get a sense as to once Brexit is finally done and dusted, and granted that none of us may live long enough to see that, but nevertheless, do, do you have any idea yet as to what sort of form it might actually take no absolutely none at all i I think that's that's one of the biggest problems we've had throughout this entire discussion and and i think that that there is still not enough of a realization here in the uk that what uk governments have said since the referendum and what the eu have said since the referendum are exactly the opposite the eu wants things post brexit if brexit happens to be as similar as possible to the situation that uh, was the case while the uk was a member of the eu the british government so far have wanted the opposite they've wanted britain to start again with a clean slate these two aims are incompatible and stephanie's right to emphasize the if in what that German official said. If you agree to everything we want you to agree to, we can do a deal the day after tomorrow. Well, yes, of course, but that ain't going to happen. It's possible, I suspect, if it comes to the crunch, a deal will be done eventually, as we saw on the supposed withdrawal deal that Boris Johnson supposedly agreed at the very last minute uh, just a few weeks ago. But uh, no, I, I, I don't see a sense of optimism at all about this. It's going to be long and hard and fraught and very bad tempered. I think what's really going to be interesting is to see if Boris Johnson gets a good, solid majority, if he might actually then 
be tempted to go for a more soft Brexit because he can get it through the House of Commons. Mm. And that's something that, of course, they're looking in Berlin and Brussels very keenly tonight at the at the outcome of this poll and will say, because they know at the end of the day, what does Boris Johnson want? He, want to stay, he wants to stay in power. Mm. And if he wants a, a trade deal soon and if he wants it to be smooth for the British economy, then he will agree to a far softer Brexit than his right-wingers in his own parliamentary group will want. Except, Robert, I will put that back to you because this is something I have wondered. And again, I, I, I may be just be one of life's crazed optimists, but B- Boris Johnson, as we know, doesn't really... I don't think he's particularly invested in Brexit one way or the other. I don't think he's particularly in anything invested in anything uh, one way or the other, apart from, as Stephanie correctly says, uh, being the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. If he does, as polls and most bookmakers think, win a majority today uh, and can therefore govern in his own right and if, as also seems likely, the Brexit party has fallen flat on its face straight out of the gate and is no longer really a factor, is it possible, because for all the reasons Stephanie has just adumbrated, if Boris Johnson wants to stay in power and not be hated by absolutely everybody, uh, he might end up guiding the UK into a kind of, I, I guess, Norway or Switzerland sort of arrangement under which nothing really changes. It's possible. I don't think it's likely, because one thing we don't know is the um, Brexit orientation of the new tranche of Tory MPs who will be elected today and where they sit on this spectrum. It is possible, of course, that they will just want somehow to get out of this nightmare and will agree to whatever they can find to agree on. But it's also possible that they have been selected as candidates at a time when the Tory party was in a very sort of arch Brexity sort of frame of mind and that they may be hardliners. We don't know. There are so many unknown unknowns. I, I, feel, I feel really reluctant to make any kind of prediction that goes beyond what I might have for lunch when I leave here. <laughs> well, finally on our news panel, Germany might at least be willing uh, to agree that the UK remains, despite everything, a less vexatious diplomatic partner than Russia. Because last week, as we discussed on the briefing, Germany bounced two Russian diplomats by way of response to the assassination of a retired Chechen warlord and Georgian citizen in a Berlin park, allegedly by agents of the Russian state. Today, Germany's ambassador to Moscow has been summoned to what one imagines will be a meeting very much without coffee at the Russian Foreign Ministry to be informed of how Russia plans to respond to Germany's response. Um, Stephanie, is it kind of weird that Russia's biting on this at all? Wouldn't, I mean, we should note that as is customary, of course, Russia denies absolutely everything, sort of known enemy of Russia found dead in park in Berlin, nothing to do with us, could have happened to anybody. But wouldn't they have calculated, if they did have something to do with that, that Germany's obviously going to throw out a couple of diplomats by way of response? Everyone knows how this works. It's the cost of doing business. Doesn't, isn't, isn't Russia just prolonging the row? Well, it's, um, I think everything that's happening now and the escalate, escalation of this, uh, this row between Berlin and Moscow is not surprising at all. If you, if you cast our mind back to the Skripal case in March 2018, mm. it was absolutely the same scenario. Um, it, there were a lot of proofs that actually the Russian state, whoever is the Russian state in that moment, was behind the attack mm-hmm. on, on the former um, <coughs> agent in, in Salisbury. Now, this in this case, uh, in August 2019, I think, there was a murder in the Tier Park in, in, in mm-hmm. Berlin. Um, and it seems like uh, German intelligence, German police have enough proofs. They actually also um, arrested the killer, who um, is, a, is a Russian citizen. Um, and 
they had uh, tried to get cooperation by the Russian uh, authorities to to find out what are the motives behind. And there was apparently no cooperation at all. So then uh, a couple of days ago, the German foreign ministry said, oh, we are going to uh, expel Russian diplomats. And now it's a tit for tat. And of course, everybody, I mean, especially we don't know anything other from Vladimir Putin. He will try to keep his version going. And he's inventing a lot of stories about actually the guy who was killed. He was a criminal and they had uh, they had actually asked the German authorities um, to expel him back to Russia. Germany says that's not true. They never asked us. So there, there is now a lot of different narratives. And, uh, well, you might answer the question, which narrative is the, uh, the, the true one? Robin, there is an amount of shadow play here. I mean, even if we accept Russia's denials of involvement in anything ever, it, it is nevertheless the case that in recent years, a quite sizable number of adversaries, enemies of Russia have turned turned up dead in picturesque circumstances. And surely part of the reason you do that um, is not just merely to dispense of enemies, but to let everybody know that you've done it and that you can do it and you will do it again and you'll expect to get away with it. That, I think, is the key point. It seems to me that the only way in which really to understand what uh, Vladimir Putin is up to is to see it through that prism. He is constantly looking to see what he can get away with and looking to see what he can get away with on foreign territory. Mm. Uh, whether it's uh, seizing a part of Ukraine, whether it's invading Georgia, whether it's killing uh, ex-agents in Salisbury, whether it's interfering in the US elections, he just wants to keep pushing to see how much he can get away with and what the reaction will be. And I find what's really interesting about the German case is that somebody in the Moscow hierarchy decided to test Germany and see what will happen there. Because, of course, Germany actually is one of the European nations which is possibly most reluctant to uh, go head-to-head against Russia because of the very close industrial and energy interests. So um, it's interesting that he is just pushing and pushing of that envelope. Can I get away with it in Germany? Can I get away with it here? We know what he's tried to get away with in the UK. We know he's tried to interfere in French politics. Now it seems to be Germany's turn. Stephanie, is this likely to be a thing in German-Russian relations? And, and, And how are they generally? Does Germany get on with Russia notably better or worse than the rest of the EU? Well, that's a big question. It's, it's really tricky to say. I mean, it's known that Angela Merkel has a very difficult relationship with Vladimir Putin. She's mm. has always been very critical of Russia. At the same time, obviously, there's massive dependence of uh, German energy um, uh, consumers of on Russian gas. There's a lot of um, pressure by the German business um, community and interestingly also from the CDU um, herself, so from Angela Merkel's party, to lift the sanctions uh, which were um, introduced after the annexion, annexion of, uh, of Crimea. So um, Angela Merkel is in a very tricky situation there. And also they just met in Paris to um, talk about the um, peace agreement for Ukraine with um Ukrainian president and with Putin. So it is, it is, they are between a rock and a hard place, the German government. When it comes to Russia in general, I should think that Germans are far more, say, accommodating of what Russia does than other European countries. Okay, well, finally, finally, uh, on today's news panel, as we did note earlier, there is a general election occurring here in the UK today. Uh, For quite a lot of this week, we've just been asking our guests to tell us about where they voted, what their local polling station was like. Uh, Stephanie, this is going to be difficult for you because you don't vote in UK elections. Um, But where do you vote in Germany when you vote there? Um, I... 
The last time I voted, I think I voted in uh, my former primary school in Mönchengladbach. And funny enough, now my British husband is voting in our daughter's primary school in, in London. And both primary schools look exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> This old break Victorian style primary school. So, yeah. Uh, Robin, I was asking you earlier, I, be I believe you have already uh, taken or done your bit for democracy today. W where did you do this? I went down the road to my local library, as I have done every election for, well, for literally for decades, because I've lived in the same place for nearly 40 years. Um, and I love it. Um, it, it. It's a lovely, old-fashioned library, and of course it's very quiet. And uh, the polling booths are just as they've always been, slightly rickety, plywood, knocked together, As they look as if they'd been knocked together in somebody's back garden. My favourite thing about voting in all UK elections is the stubby little pencil and a piece <laughs> of string that is provided in the polling booth. It, it could be 1890 as far as the polling is concerned. I don't know why we are so resolutely analogue in the way that we vote. I put a cross on my little palette paper with a stubby pencil and then I folded my ballot paper and shoved it in a box and that is what British voters have done for decades and decades and decades completely unchanged. Robin Lustig and Stephanie Bolson, thank you both. In a moment we'll be finding out how and why Aung San Suu Kyi has ended up at The Hague. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today, some reflections from this correspondent on Aung San Suu Kyi's appearance this week before the UN's International Court of Justice in The Hague. Awarding someone the Nobel Prize for Peace is always tempting fate. Such are the vagaries of human affairs, yesterday's warmonger is tomorrow's peacemaker, and vice versa, that it's not really the Norwegian Nobel Committee's fault when posterity makes mockery of some of their judgments. When you give a peace gong to someone like Henry Kissinger or Yasser Arafat, it's just a risk you run. It is nevertheless startling to see an actual Nobel Peace Laureate appearing at the International Court of Justice in The Hague to defend the government they lead against allegations of genocide. It's pretty much the one thing that isn't supposed to happen. History had given us the opportunity to give of our best for a cause in which we believed. When the Nobel Committee chose to honour me, the road I had chosen of my own free will became a less lonely path to follow. Aung San Suu Kyi, daughter of the founder of modern Myanmar, Aung San, and a formidable politician, diplomat and activist in her own right, won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991. At the time, she was rivaled only by Nelson Mandela as a universally admired avatar of all that was good, displaying exemplary courage in resisting all that was bad. She led the National League for Democracy as it faced down the terrifying and ruthless military junta which had turned Myanmar into North Korea with palm trees. 
Aung San Suu Kyi spent most of the period between 1989 and 2010 under house arrest. She was a hero. Aside from the Nobel Peace Prize, she was awarded the Sakharov Prize, a US Congressional Gold Medal and Presidential Medal of Freedom, an Honorary Order of Australia, Honorary Citizenship of Canada, and Amnesty International's Ambassador of Conscience Award. Luc Besson made a film about her. You too wrote a song about her. And in time, she triumphed. The NLD won a landslide election victory in 2015. Though denied the presidency on a technicality, she became state councillor, effectively Myanmar's prime minister. It was hailed worldwide as a victory for decency, determination and patience. And now she's denying that she is some kind of an accessory to crimes against humanity. Aung San Suu Kyi has been, it is fair to say, on a journey. Please bear in mind this complex situation and the challenge to sovereignty and security in our country when you are assessing the intent of those who attempted to deal with the rebellion. Surely, under the circumstances, genocidal intent cannot be the only hypothesis. It is important to be clear that while Aung San Suu Kyi is in The Hague, she is not in the dock. She is appearing voluntarily and has not been charged with any crime. The allegation before the ICJ is against her country, not her. The case has been brought by the Gambia, backed by the 57 members of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, a coterie which includes several nations who might want to pause before mounting their high horses where human rights are concerned. The allegation is, essentially, that Myanmar's recent persecution of the Rohingya people, Myanmar's Muslim minority who live mostly in the country's Rakhine state, amounts to genocide. This is a term with specific legal meanings, and it will be for the court to determine if events in Myanmar meet the threshold. What is known is bad enough. Since 2016, perhaps a million Rohingya have fled Myanmar, mostly to neighbouring Bangladesh. Journalists, NGOs and the UN have reported a consistent pattern of atrocious violence, much of it directed at civilians, not excluding children. Myanmar's military, known as the Tatmadaw, have consistently claimed that they are waging a counterinsurgency against Islamist terrorists. Though Aung San Suu Kyi does not directly command the Tatmadaw, this is also the line that she has held. The most sympathetic imaginable interpretation of Aung San Suu Kyi's behaviour, and it's a reach, is that she is still, in some respects, the prisoner of the same military which once held her under house arrest. She may have calculated that this is a compromise she has to make to maintain such democracy as Myanmar now has, that if she takes on the military, the military will once again take charge of the country. This is a question unlikely to interest the hundreds of thousands of Rohingya now wondering if they'll ever be able to go home again. And they, of course, are the ones who have survived the Tatmadaw's pogroms. Justice for the victims, if it is coming at all, may be years away. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller.
That's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were Steph Chongu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.